David Mickley is the Business Development Director at Wintermute, one of the largest digital asset market makers in the world. They run Delta Neutral strategies with an average daily trading volume of around $5 billion. Wintermute spans across OTC, market making and ventures, so David is keeping a close eye on, on all aspects of crypto markets. Let's hear more into the operations of Wintermute from David and also about lessons from the huge hack they suffered recently. Wintermute is a crypto market maker. Uh, you know, some background on sort of our firm. Uh, we were founded five years ago from executives from Optiver, a traditional finance market making firm. So we have those sort of traditional finance market making um, experiences in our roots, but are very much also a crypto native firm, uh, exclusively trading crypto and have a deep bench of talent, of developers, uh, DeFi traders. Uh, we really see our mission and vision as bringing together the best of both worlds, uh, traditional finance trading and um, DeFi engagement um, training as well. So what do we do? Um, well, the first thing we do is just market make um, with our own capital uh, across venues. So market neutral, liquidity providing, buying and selling, high frequency trading simultaneously, and uh, just being there to support the markets and doing it in a way where we sort of exploit the arbitrage opportunities across many venues, across many tokens. So we trade on 80 venues, a total of 250 tokens. And then we do a few um, activities with external partners. One is OTC. So we trade blocks across the 250 tokens that we support via chat, via user interface and API. We also market make for projects. So when tokens are getting listed on exchanges, we provide liquidity, ensuring that there's a healthy order book for investors and traders to get in and out of positions. And then we also have a venture arm, which is simply our own capital deploying into projects and companies that we think are going to advance the crypto ecosystem. Can you give a sense of how big your AUM is right now and how that's split among your uh, your different businesses? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, our, our AUM, um, you know, it's really about what is our trading capital and what is sort of the... Um, you know, positions, the, the reach that we can achieve based on our trading capital. So we have a healthy balance sheet of our own capital. And then on top of that, we borrow um, from many different counterparties to extend that capital and trade more. Uh, so by far, you know, the biggest activity is, you know, our market making across venues. That's sort of our focus. That's our bread and butter. Uh, but it, that sort of system is also related to our OTC trading because our market making essentially is built on our ability to um, understand how to move in and out of positions very quickly. And because of that, we're able to give very competitive pricing to counterparties that want to trade blocks. Uh, you know, if you think about what market making actually is, um, we're just there providing the market. So when you're on major exchanges, we're anywhere between 10 to 40% of the trading volume, depending on which exchange you're talking about, which means that if you're trading there, you're indirectly trading with the liquidity, the buying and sell orders that we're posting. So by trading directly with Wintermute, you take out that intermediary, take out that out of layer fees, and you also work with a player that's trained across many venues, not just one, that also has an expertise in taking on risk. So we essentially are the counterparty for trades that people come to us for OTC and can price very, very competitively large blocks of illiquid positions. Uh, so the two are sort of related, the market making and OTC trading, uh, but it all sort of comes from that same core uh, expertise of building out high frequency trading systems. So how much is your own capital? Yeah, so I can't disclose an exact number, uh, but I can say it's you know in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And then from there, you said you you extend that reach with uh, with capital you're able to 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 borrow. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. We borrow from many different sources. Uh, you know, there's a range of entities that are looking for yield and lending to a market neutral market maker has um, a lot of appeal um, because we're not exposed to the directions of the market. So when the market moves up, the market moves down, our train systems can still be uh, productive, can still be profitable. Uh, in fact, they're profitable daily. Uh, we basically only trade when there is an arbitrage opportunity. So we don't really, uh, you know, our train systems are agnostic to the direction of the market. In fact, volatility is actually a great time to find better arbitrage opportunities. So sometimes when the market goes down, there's more volatility. Or when it goes up, there's more volatility. That's sort of the, the best friend of a market maker. And uh, you know, for someone that wants to get exposure to crypto and not have directional exposure, lending to a market maker is a great way to do that. 
I'll definitely want to get into your uh, your strategies and kind of where you're finding those arbitrage opportunities um, uh, down down the line in the conversation. Uh, but just uh, on your uh, OTC desk, you're, you're saying kind of this opportunity to take out that intermediary and trade directly with uh, with Wintermute, who is providing a lot of liquidity to to exchanges. Um, what are some of the requirements? For uh, for traders who want to uh, be a part of uh, this OTC desk. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So we work with a range of entities, from high net worth individuals to funds, crypto native and traditional finance funds, uh, to large retail platforms, to large financial institutions. The key criteria to onboard with us is to first go through our KYC process. Uh, we're very compliant. We're headquartered in the UK and registered with the Financial Conduct Authority of the UK. So we require uh, to KYC all counterparties that trade with us. And, and the other is to be trained at a minimum size that makes sense given our business. So the minimum trade size for chat or user interface is typically $100,000. You know, there's no real maximum trade size. We've done trades in the hundreds of millions of dollars in one block. Uh, so those are kind of the key criteria to trade directly with us. But that being said, uh, we are also incubating uh, a DEX called Bebop, which is a way to access Wintermute's liquidity in a permissionless environment. Uh, so, you know, initially that's just Wintermute's liquidity, and eventually we'll also have other market makers provide liquidity to that DEX. Uh, so that's a way that individuals can access Wintermute's liquidity uh, through this sort of permissionless uh, you know, DeFi approach. Uh, but to actually um, trade directly with Wintermute, um, you know, proper, that you uh, need to go through the KYC and meet the requirements I just described. For this DEX, are you like are you following the traditional Uniswap V2 curve uh, model or uh, like uh, yeah? If you can kind of give more details on how exactly that will be built. Yeah, yeah. So there's quite a few features that are different. We basically are just trying to you know. We're a trading firm, but we're also um, see ourselves as a, a tech firm and a firm of builders. So we just were trying to identify pain points or opportunities in DeFi that we can help address and create a DEX that is just a you know a trading experience that, that addresses those problems. So you know one example of Bebop is that you can trade many tokens to one or one to many tokens all in one trade. Uh, sort of sort of the structure and design is quite different than other DEXs. Uh, and again, sort of the liquidity um, doesn't really come from pools in the same sense as you know Uniswap. It's more there's um, liquidity providers, market makers that can feed their pricing into the DEX. And right now, as I mentioned, we're the only liquidity provider. It's still sort of in an early stage, but eventually we'll open that up and have multiple liquidity providers, multiple market makers like Wintermute able to uh, give their pricing on this DEX and then individuals can you know, have that aggregate pricing, have access to that aggregate pricing. Are you trying to create some sort of um, like uh, trade, like 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 a book, but on chain, without having uh, like automated pools? Yeah, it's it's more um, that, that I, I would describe it less as a book and more as um, a pricing that liquidity providers stream. Um, yeah, and it's still kind of in its early days. So, you know, don't, don't want to get too ahead and sort of uh, prescribe exactly how it's going to look. A lot of, you know, the way we're going to develop it is based on feedback. It's sort of in a, a beta launch stage right now where we're, you know, giving, um, you know, whitelisted access to you know, certain users. So if you would like to try it, glad to give you the, the access so you can see what it's like. Give us your feedback um, because we're really trying to build this out uh, based upon what, what people want and need. Cool. Um, and then when do you expect to launch it? Um, so it's already launched in sort of a beta phase. And as far as the next stage of growth, uh, yeah, that's to be determined. But uh, we definitely like to ship things and build things fast at Wintermute. And uh, that's just been our approach, you know, not just with Bebop. Also, earlier this year, we launched a user interface for our OTC desk. So prior to that, the only way to access our... Well, I should even say our OTC sort of has been, a, you know, an innovation in its own right over the past year and a half. Uh, we initially just started out as a market-making firm, trained our own capital, then launched our OTC via chat and generally Telegram, then built out our API so people can plug in through that. And then we launched our user interface called Node earlier this year. 
which is a way for people that, you know, some people don't feel comfortable trading over Telegram and others don't have the tech capability to connect through API. So the user interface is a great middle ground where it's very intuitive. You sort of just click, you know, what you want to buy, what you want to sell, get a price, can take it or leave it. Um, and we launched that pretty aggressively and quickly too. So that's just our approach in general is we want to build things. We want to launch them. We want to get feedback and make them better. Uh, you know, we're, we're not a huge team or about 90 people total, but we have very competent, uh, great people across all departments, which enables us to build and iterate fast. Okay. So we'll be watching out, uh, for the, the public launch of the decks. I feel like, you know, we need to get this, uh, the, the elephant out of the Uh, in the room out there, the the, the recent hack, um, which you know, super uh, un unfortunate um, and and um, you know, sad to hear about it. Um, so, you know, very very briefly, uh, when we uh, recently suffered a, a hack uh, where uh, the the hacker was able to make off with about 160 million uh, in digital assets. So, yeah, can you just go over um, how that happened and uh, the consequences that's had for you guys? Yeah, sure. Glad, glad to talk about it. So I'd say um, a few things. First, the best detailed account of the hack, what happened, how we've been dealing with it is definitely either on our Twitter or Afghani's Twitter, um, our CEO. We were uh, pretty public about what we knew as we were learning new things and communicated that uh, pretty transparently. So definitely recommend to check those out. Uh, you know, there's not too much I can share in details about sort of the, the reason for the hack and how it happened. But, you know, essentially, uh, we got hacked. That's correct. The amount was $160 million of digital assets. I think the things to know about are first, uh, this is a loss that Wintermute has taken completely. So none of our counterparties, none of our partners are losing any funds, losing any money. It's just a hit to Wintermute's, you know, uh, personal balance and that's it. Um, the second thing about the hack is it doesn't change our business at all. So we still have a very healthy balance sheet. We're still able to do all the things that we were doing before trade OTC, market make trade on DeFi, uh, that's still all all systems go ahead. I think what's been remarkable about this hack experience um, was really two things. One was just the amount of support that we received from across the community. People reaching out to us, asking how they can help, both from you know our partners, but even our competitors. And it was just something that made me feel really good to work in crypto. Uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, I come from traditional finance and, you know, if I had similar experience in my previous firm, I don't think that this would have been uh, the reaction that we would have received. So it was really great just to receive that support. Uh, and, and I think that was most noted in sort of our lending relationships. So we borrow a lot of capital and, you know, our lenders continue to lend to us because we were able to demonstrate the strength of our financial positioning. We uh, use a third party provider called Credora that helps with credit rating for lending and borrowing. And uh, all of this, you know, was obviously a reason for our lenders to ask questions. We answered those questions and in a way that instilled confidence so that they can still lend to us and that we're still in a healthy position. So, so nothing changes besides the fact that we have, you know, increased security measures. We learned a lot about how we can make things hack proof for the future and uh, yeah, have to you know move on and continue with our work. Has this third party credit rating provider been able to review your, um, your financial situation after the hack and uh, have they uh, updated their rating on that or, or they haven't had a chance to review it yet? Yeah, no, they, they did review it, exactly. That's kind of what their job is, is to review our financial positioning, review sort of all the, the metrics that they would need to, to you know, give us a rating. And, you know, the rating is still strong and our, you know, we had a, we were in a fortunate position where we could lose that amount of money and still be in a very strong position. So there's, there's no doubt that it hurts. Um, you know, most of all, just, um, you know, it's just that much less money to do new things with, but we are um, big enough that our positioning is still strong to really do everything we did before. So it, it kind of sounds funny to say this, but You know, besides the fact that we have $160 million less and, you know, we've added some security features, um, nothing really changes for us about the hack in terms of our business. So they, they didn't downgrade your, your rating? They reviewed it. Uh, like I said, we had a strong enough cushion that it didn't affect it. You know, it's sort of 
you, you need a certain kind of um, cushion of a balance sheet depending on the assets that you're borrowing. Um, and, and again, it didn't affect it given that we have a strong enough balance sheet on top of what was lost. Okay. And then specifically on kind of the security measures, like what was the, what are the, the main things that went wrong and that you learned and are changing going forward? Yeah, I sort of have to be, I wish I could share all of our learnings on this one, but have to be somewhat sensitive in terms of what I share. Uh, but, you know, it's, um, you know, basically, I guess the high level is just that, you know, we're, we've made some upgrades. Um, we're continuing to sort of look at how we can constantly improve these things for the future. Um, but yeah, there's not too much detail I can share beyond that. Um, just because the nature of it is security. What's been kind of reported publicly, right, is that you you use this uh, third party kind of wallet, like vanity address, uh, and that the exploit was related to that. Um, just like for other users of of uh, of these kind of products, or of you know, just like open source, like DeFi, Web three uh, products out there, like. Any, any recommendations that you can give out, like based on your experience with this provider? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, you know, we, we actually um, sort of, uh, you know, understood that there was a vulnerability in sort of the profanity um, generated addresses. And we're, we're working on addressing that. Um, so I, I'd say, you know, there was kind of specifically a, just a, a human error in sort of the ways we implemented one of those things. Um, and the hack had some really sophisticated features to it, not sort of a, a simple job. Um, but I think it's the nature of DeFi, right? I think if you think about anyone that's on the cutting edge, that's building things at the forefront. I mean, you look at, you know, what happened with Wormhole and Jump. Um, you look at a, a lot of these big firms that are targets uh, because of all the, you know, the size of them and kind of being at the bleeding edge. I, I think it's just about having, better, you know, consistently thinking about, checks on your systems. That's probably the highest level um, advice I could give, uh, right? Because each situation is a little particular and a little different. But I think, you know, that's probably the most important philosophy in general is thinking about checks on a system um, because DeFi is at the cutting edge of technology and there are always potentials for vulnerabilities. So how do you both be at the cutting edge and address the potential for those vulnerabilities uh, you know, it's, it's always going to be a challenge, but I think having a culture of checks on systems is is a good way to think about that. A paranoid mindset. A paranoid mindset. Yeah. And, and I have to say, um, sort of that, that's, um, you know, it, it's, again, it's a double-edged sword because you, you want to be innovative too. You also want to be entrepreneurial. And we at Winterview take great pride in our leading position in DeFi and how much activity we do on chain and how much we focus on building out the DeFi ecosystem. Um, but the system is so young. There's uh, so many places where things can go wrong. So you just need to keep that in mind while you're also doing new bold things. Before we move on to what's going on in the market and how you're specifically interacting with DeFi, um, I'd love to get kind of your own background. You, you mentioned you have experience in traditional finance. So yeah, how, how did you get uh, to Wintermute? Yeah, sure. Glad to share that. Uh, so I guess recent background, um, you know, my first exposure to crypto was in business school. I, I went to MIT Sloan, uh, had a few um, classes focused on crypto. Actually, uh, took a class with Gary Gensler, um, who's now obviously uh, not the biggest fan of crypto. Uh, I think he came out against Kim Kardashian today. So, um, yeah, but as a professor, he actually was pretty knowledgeable and was a good teacher. Um, had some other people that came in to talk to our classes uh, you know, Meltem, Jeremy, uh, Alaire from Circle. So that's what was my first exposure to crypto. But I actually got into finance, traditional finance right out of business school. Um, went to Bridgewater, Macro Hedge Fund in Connecticut, uh, worked with clients, um, institutional clients and prospects. And then in 2020, uh, connected with this crypto startup called Floating Point Group that was founded out of MIT. Uh, joined them. Uh, I really joined them for the culture more than for the crypto industry. I just thought that especially compared to my experience at Bridgewater, they were, you know, just the friendliest, most collaborative group of people I ever met. Um, and Bridgewater is a lot of things, but, you know, probably doesn't get the reputation for that. So I, I joined them because it was a great cultural feel. Uh, and then I found that crypto as an industry had this whole cultural feel of people trying to help each other, of being very innovative, of being risk-taking. Uh, so, you know, I was in the space since 2020, joined Wintermute at the beginning of this year. 
uh, learned about Wintermute early on in my crypto journey, uh, knew and respected them as a market maker, as active in DeFi. And I was really interested in working more closely with projects, both on the market making and investing side. And, and what's cool about being at Wintermute is that there's many ways we can help projects. So let's say a project comes to us and they need a market maker, but they're not getting ready. To, they're not going to be listed until six months from now. Well, we still might be able to partner as an investor and get in on their seed round, give them strategic advice as they're going through their launch plans, be there for them as their market maker. Let's say they have a DEX. We can trade on their DEX. We can bring volumes there. Let's say they're a lending borrowing protocol. We can borrow from them, help break up activity on the borrowing side. So there's just, there's just so much we can do in helping these projects. And projects are really just um, you know founders trying to build things for their communities and users. So that to me is uh, one of the really exciting things about working at Wintermute. Unironically in it for the culture. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Exactly. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen specifically because of poor key management, scams, and hackers. My new sponsor, ZenGo Crypto Wallet, wants to change the game entirely by creating a crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability. ZenGo aims to be the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secure. After all, with no private key to steal, your crypto assets and NFTs are much more difficult to hack. Get started at zengo.com slash defiant and use code defiant to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's cengo.com slash defiant. Terms and conditions apply, so check out their site for details. With all of the macro headwinds from an energy crisis in Europe, global inflation, a war in Ukraine, and the recent turmoil with Credit Suisse, we can't help but experience a deja vu of the 2008 financial crisis. Are we just on the first part of a multi-year crypto winter? In the next part of our conversation, I asked David about his opinion on the current state of the market and where we're heading next. So, so how long is really long in your mind? <laughs> I don't know, like, like two years, three years, like it's kind of 2008 to 2021 type yeah. of crypto winter, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't, I don't know if I think it's going to be two to three years, but I do think it could easily be 12 months plus. Um, you know, I, I think the turn could happen sometime in 2024, um, maybe late 2023, but definitely not holding my breath for things to be resolved in the next few months. Um, and there's a few reasons why. So um, maybe I'm just you know, in general, optimistic as a person, but uh, pessimistic about the markets and macro, um, because there's just so many challenges. I, you know, the it's kind of might be trite at this point to talk about it, but the inflation issue is just a real one, and I think it takes time and continuous pressure on liquidity to bring down inflation. I mean, we just had this massive environment of free money for so long that was capped by COVID, and. We just have no idea how much it's going to take for that liquidity to actually, uh, you know, be pressured enough to cause inflation to slow down. Um, so you had free money. Now you're getting more and more expensive money. And the things that will get hurt the most are the riskiest assets. And crypto, in my mind, is still in that category of risky assets. That doesn't mean everything is correlated to in crypto to equities. But it just means that a lot of it could be and has a pressure that, you know, will be aligned somewhat with that. And there's obviously other pressures in terms of demand and usage that could, you know, counteract that. But you just have to think about what are all the individual pressures and which ones are you know, large enough to matter. Um, and liquidity is definitely a pressure that matters. So I, I think the continuous interest rates increases, uh, the change in liquidity dynamics is going to make it hard for the price action of crypto. But that is very different than what's going on in the ecosystem of crypto. And as far as people moving in, talent moving in, things being built, funds being raised, I mean, that has not slowed down at all. At Wintermute, we are so busy onboarding new counterparties, uh, new funds, both active trading hedge funds and long-term venture style um, crypto native and otherwise funds. They're they're opening up accounts. They're they were getting ready to trade. Some of them are already trading. Some of them are just want things lined up for when they're ready to make moves again. But yeah, the, the amount of talent and capital that continues to get poured into the space is still keeping us very very busy. So you know if you're 
hoping that the price is all of a sudden going to jump up in a few months. Um, you know, you might have to hope for a little longer than that. But if you're excited about things being built and what that ultimately means for the entire ecosystem long term, I think now is a pretty good time. And and one thing that I think makes it a good time is that everything's hurting, not just crypto. So the opportunity cost of leaving tech for crypto is you know not really there. I mean, if you are a tech company and your salary is you know fourth in stocks and that's been plummeted by eighty percent, then you're not as incentivized to stay, and you can take a jump and move over to a much more exciting, fast-moving industry. So I think it's actually a bullish season for crypto building, but we'll be bearish for a while for just price action. Yeah, you're right. That That is different from like 2018 crypto bear market in that, you know, all markets are down. So at least crypto is not um, competing in, in that sense uh, for talent and, and capital. Um, it, it's a good point. But really interesting what you said about Wintermute continued, uh, con continuing to onboard um, counterparties, you know, hedge funds, venture funds who are interested in, in trading crypto. So you haven't seen uh, a hit in, in, in those numbers this year or, or maybe not, not, as, not as big a hit as, as you would have expected. If you can, I don't know, if, like put that into numbers or just like go deeper into that yeah i mean i think there's a few things driving i mean the, the short answer is ha haven't seen a hit have seen an increase um very very busy mm -hmm. onboarding new versus last year uh well so i was here i joined at the beginning of this year but i i would say um versus let's say the beginning of this year first january february um much more activity now than six months ago before you know luna before three arrows uh, more activity now than before that is probably a good marker um and so I think there's probably two things driving it. One is I think that winning, like our specific type of business of having a new counterparty for OTC, having a new counterparty on board and trade with us, there's some process involved. You know, we try to make it as easy as possible, but there's KYC, there's a trade agreement. You know, we need to go through that, agree on the terms. So that takes time. And a bull market, no one has time for that, right? People just want to trade. They don't have time to think about, you know, and integrating with a new service provider. They don't have time to integrate with a new API. They just have to think about, okay, who are their partners and how can they go as fast as possible with them? But now uh, people are taking their time. And because they are taking their time, they can be thoughtful, look around and say, oh, wait, um, Wintermute trades 250 tokens. My existing counterparties only trade 50. And Wintermute's market share of these exchanges is you know 10 plus percent. Maybe I should take the time to onboard with them. So we haven't historically had a huge BD and marketing team uh, until we've started to grow that up this year. But now more people are hearing about us and they have time to onboard with us. So that's one thing. Uh, and the second thing is for the really, really big institutions, the ones that are managing $500 billion, a trillion dollars plus, they are just going through the natural, very long and slow process that might have begun two years ago, where they started with one person that said, hey, we should do crypto. And that one person that built a working group. And that working group took a year to build a recommendation. That recommendation turned into the first full-time hire. Now that hire has a team. And now that team can then reach out to us and work with us and we can onboard them. So some of those things just take time. And those those things are we're seeing the fruition of now, uh, of major, major players that are looking for advice on how to get connected to the space and then looking for liquidity once they do. Mm, that's so interesting how... Uh... Yeah, maybe there, there's this phenomenon where, like, just like the the time frames of a big kind of financial institutions and 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 companies um, are are so much just slower than times in crypto. So yeah, They're maybe so kind of slow. yeah, so <laughs> slow. Sometimes sometimes painfully slow. Yeah, <laughs> but. But that's just the way they work, the way they assess risk. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just their way of treating crypto. It's their way of treating all asset classes. Um, you know, when I was at Bridgewater, the typical sales cycle was 18 months minimum, right? And, you know, we had sovereign wealth funds that knew about Bridgewater, but it would take 18 months minimum for them to get to know us before they put an allocation. And sometimes it would be five years or 10 years. So it's just the way big players move for better or worse. I mean, on the plus side, like I, I'd imagine once you get those big players in like trading digital assets they're probably you know they're they're in it for for the long term like they already took all this time to evaluate the space and bring on a team and you know figure out what their view is 
Uh, so it's not like they're just going to jump ship at the, you know, the first sign of volatility, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. They're not just going to jump ship and they are also going to bring very meaningful volumes with them, right? Um, and some of them are seeing this from uh, demand from their users. You know, one really interesting use case is um, the whole sort of network of federal credit unions that have seen literally uh, funds from their accounts being exported to Coinbase, to crypto exchanges. And they're saying, oh, we have to figure out a way to keep these assets and offer trading services. So uh, you have federal credit unions that are trying to figure out ways to offer liquidity and custody services directly in the app that you do all your banking and checking with them. Um, you know, so the same website where you can take out a car loan, you could, you know, soon, maybe one day be able to trade crypto in. Um, so I think it's driven from demand from their users. And I think you're right that it's, it's stickier once it comes. Uh, and that's kind of how we're built as a trading firm. You know, we expect that there'll be waves and there's always time between waves to get ready for the next one. And each wave should be bigger than the one before that. So whenever the next wave comes, whether it's 2023, 2024, uh, we're building for it and uh, want to be ready for it. So you said before that, um, you know, you, you know, you believe that there's like all these uh, headwinds coming, not just for crypto, but markets in general. Um the, the biggest one being inflation and, and just liquidity being sucked out of the market uh, to um, to rein that in. Um, but, you know, are there any pockets in crypto where you're seeing uh, that assets are or, 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 or prices or activity uh, is, is less correlated uh, with the overall market? Um, I don't know if that's, you know, be it uh, maybe stablecoin products, or uh, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering if there's like any corner of the space that that's seeing kind of a, a good moment right now because of the environment. Yeah, um, you know, I think um, it's hard to paint a broad brush on any space, part of the space that has is having a good moment in terms of price action. Um, but I think maybe like one comment on that is, you know, I think the larger the market cap of an asset, the more likely it is to be correlated to broader macro trends. Um, just given that, you know, larger players, uh, Bitcoin and ETH, that could be meaningful for them, but they might not be able to touch, you know, tokens that are outside the top 100 market cap. So those lower market cap assets often um, are not quite as correlated. Um, but, you know, obviously that you know, they're, they're riskier too, in a way. Um, but as far as a certain part of the space, I think, I think sort of the whole infrastructure play is still something that a lot of investors are looking at um, and want to invest in and build around, you know, just thinking that those things will go do well in any sort of market um, and will be, you know, good um, kind of regardless of who the winners are, they'll be needed. So, yeah, I don't think that's quite a novel take, though. I mean, that's probably been the case for a few years, sort of the infrastructure thesis. Uh, but I just think that's probably something that is getting a lot of focus these days. And, and maybe that's related to this sort of wave of institutions, like what sort of infrastructure do they need? Um, what sort of infrastructure do, you know, do we really need to make DeFi more accessible to more people? So I think those are questions that a lot of founders and investors are trying to answer. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, sort of just purely on price, I, I don't know any kind of broad area that's, I would say, is safe. Nobody's, uh, nobody's safe. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's safe. <laughs> nobody's safe. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, but but I, would say, I would say that here we are seeing a lot of firms look at these low valuations for projects as, as buying opportunities. So what's interesting is that, you know, some venture firms that typically would focus on, uh, you know, investing in sort of pre-launch tokens might see some tokens that are launched at really attractive valuations uh, and might want to uh, buy into that to increase their exposure. So I guess, um, you know, you obviously have to pick the ones that are actually going to succeed, but there are, there is sort of a buying opportunity for long-term investors right now. Nice. Um, on that infrastructure play though, can you elaborate on it? Like what kind of projects uh, do you mean? And also what is, like how to get exposure is it uh on kind of getting on their uh, 
like funding rounds or just directly in the public markets buying their token um like yeah how, how to access that yeah so so at Wintermute, we definitely like to invest early um in solutions that we think are needed so you know we made a few different infrastructure investments and it could be you know one for example is um clear pool it's um you know decentralized decentralized lending so you know, we count that as you know helping to build out the lending infrastructure on DeFi. Uh, they have some interesting features around how the rates dynamically adjust based on supply and demand. So we invested there. We also borrow from there. Uh, one of the larger borrowers. Uh, you know, there's projects like Credo that are offering MPC custody solutions through a decentralized approach. Um, there's projects like uh, Zerion, which you know, as a way to manage your DeFi portfolio across wallets and chains in one place. So it's really just um, taking a, a bet on things that kind of will help the ecosystem grow and will grow when the ecosystem grows. Uh, so that, that's probably that's what I mean by infrastructure. And our approach is getting in as early stage investors. Uh, but, you know, there's probably other ways to get exposure too. To swap crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on OneInch, a DEX aggregator built to get you better rates than any single DEX. Enjoy unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Get OneInch on your phone now or swap on oneinch.io. Oasis.app aims to be the most trusted entry point to the Maker Protocol and to DeFi. Today, on Oasis app, you can do much more than just borrow DAI. You can also use Multiply to change exposure to your collateral and Earn to increase Uniswap v3 trading fee earnings with your DAI. And if you're an Oasis app user already, you can refer friends and get 5% of fees they generate in DAI forever. Earlier in our conversation, David mentioned that Wintermute's market making relies on arbitrage opportunities for profit. Where is Wintermute seeing arbitrage opportunities right now? Let's hear about the strategies they follow. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, at the highest level, it's really just um, looking at prices across all venues where there's meaningful volume. So it could be centralized, it could be de decentralized. We want to be anywhere where there's meaningful volume and we want to provide liquidity, but do it in a market neutral way. So, you know, we're posting buy orders here, we're posting sell orders there. Um, and it's basically, um, you know, there's obviously a lot that goes into making the strategy effective and profitable to being faster, more accurate, all those sorts of things. But at the core, it's really just about um, basically buying and selling only when you see the arbitrage opportunity. And, you know, there, there's many different ways to sort of do that and make that happen. But that's, that's really um, it's quite a simple concept at its core. And then it's just about building out the technical infrastructure to execute that concept really well. Because uh, obviously there's other market makers in the space too. There's people that do it at a different scale. There's people that focus on different tokens. Uh, so we think our unique approach of being very active on CFI, you know, either the, the number one or the top handful of market makers across, you know, any given exchange that we're trained on and being the leader on DeFi, uh, we think that gives us a unique place where we can arbitrage the price the prices between CFI and DeFi to keep the price in line between venues. Uh, and we can also um, do very meaningful volumes across CFI where there typically are more volumes in general. Uh, so it, it's really that at its core. And then it's just about the execution. Wait, you said there you're you're seeing more volumes in in DeFi than CFI. CFI, CFI. I don't maybe I misspoke. Yes, more volumes in CFI than DeFi. Uh, but we want to be on DeFi too because there, there's opportunities there um, where the price might be out of line between DeFi and CFI, and then we could trade that, arbitrage that, um, which makes the market more efficient and gives us a chance to you know generate profitable trading strategies. So you are you are able to arbitrage between DEXs and and sexes, not just between DEXs or just between sexes, right? Because I like speaking with other market makers, they've they've told me that's kind of the the challenge that they found in dealing in, in DeFi that sometimes there are kind of these arbitrage opportunities, but um, but I don't know, just like getting in and out is isn't isn't worth kind of the trade, and and in the end, um, they they just end up sticking with uh, with CFI. So so you're you're able to make this work. 
Yeah, yeah, we are. And it's not an easy thing that we just figured out over one night, right? We have a whole team of DeFi developers that um, ha- have built and are continuously building and improving our systems. So, you know, it's um, it's definitely a challenge and it's one that, you know, we've spent a lot of resources on addressing. Uh, but the idea is, is exactly that, is that we want to look across all venues that we feel are relevant um, given our scale, right? Like if a you no know, exchange doesn't have enough liquidity or volume to be relevant, then we, we given our scale, we might not be there. But anywhere that does, we, we want to be there and we want it to include DeFi and CeFi and sort of one total view of the market. I'm interested in, in your take on on how kind of the market share between the the two um, will continue to evolve. Like at, at some point uh, last year, DeFi just kept uh, winning market share o- over CeFi, like um, uh, like De- like Dexas. Um, and we had days where Uniswap had more volume than um, than Coinbase, for example, or you know just like anecdotal. Uh, stats like like that but just like overall the trend you, you could see it uh, you could see like dexas would you know are already kind of a meaningful percentage of 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 just like crypto trading um which was so far from true just two years ago i remember just like dexas being just like tiny 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 drop in the bucket uh and now I, I can't remember the, the the last number but it was like it was like 10 percent or like a meaningful amount um how do you see that progressing like do you see uh DeFi continuing to take market share from from trading or has it reached kind of its its limit uh yeah we think DeFi has a lot of room to grow and that's why we're so active in both trading there and investing so for us you know there's a lot of problems with CeFi. uh you know kind of our view as a firm our philosophy is to really help build the decentralized world so you know, we're, we're very committed, even from a mission perspective, in helping to be part of that. Uh, and yeah, there's so many cool opportunities when you do things in a decentralized way, right? I don't need to pitch you on that, obviously. <laughs> this show is called The Defiant or, or, <laughs> or pitch the viewer, the listeners and viewers. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of interesting things happen with um, easier on-ramps to DeFi, um, easier ways to get access or, you know, existing companies that have a large following, um, creating a DeFi on-ramp, right? Like Robinhood has their DeFi wallet that they just announced recently. So I think that's only going to grow. Um, sometimes you might have users for a, a FinTech, NeoBank that don't even know they're using DeFi, but it's DeFi in the background. So I think there's going to be kind of both of that, um, people that have easier ways to access DeFi and maybe using DeFi without even knowing it. Uh, but the hope and vision is for sure for DeFi to continue to scale and grow. And uh, that's why we are very, very active there. Nice. And and for you guys as like, just like professional traders in this space, um, what are some of the, the, the differences and advantages that, that you get from trading in DeFi versus CeFi? Yeah, I think, um, well, CeFi can have a lot of issues. Um, Right, a lot of these exchanges are startups still. Their APIs might be clunky. Their software might be clunky. They might submit upgrades without telling anyone, and all of a sudden we have to make some changes. Um, they could go down, right? Um, they could change the rules about withdrawals, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, you want to have things be predictable. I think that's probably one of the most important things in trading, especially high frequency trading, um, to just know what is going to be consistent and true and reliable and then be able to build systems around that. Obviously there's a lot of things that do change, but um, you want some things to, to be consistent. So I think that DeFi has that advantage that, you know, there's, there's no like, Oh, DeFi goes down because there's too much volatility, right? In the same way that happens to major centralized exchanges when there's too much volatility. Um, The, um, you know, communication about upgrades and, systems changing is is much more transparent is much more open um and there's an opportunity to shape it uh so you know we're very active for example and with dydx and governance and we're early investors active users and now we have a, a governance team we have a you know an individual that is our DeFi envoy and his job is to engage in governance with different protocols that we care about and you know dydx is one of them so you know he'll get involved in proposals, submit them, vote on them. Uh, so that's probably the coolest part is that we get to be part of shaping it as active users. So 
I guess there's a lot of advantages, but that's just a few of them. It's so interesting that to you, you know, just like a, a huge, you know, professional high frequency trader in the market, uh, like uh, saying that DeFi is more predictable than than CFI. Um, I, I don't know that a, a lot of people, you know, that that aren't kind of deeply, deeply in the space would expect that. You know, I think just like the outside view of, of DeFi is kind of this like scrappy kind of hacker uh, place, uh, just like dark web kind of place um, that's still kind of, you know, finding its bearings. Uh, um, but, you know, hearing that it's it's performing better than these, you know, huge institutions like, you know, Coinbase or Binance. Um, I think that's pretty surprising to most. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's obviously ways that you know, centralized exchanges have certain advantages over decentralized. So I don't, I don't want to make it seem like everything's perfect in DeFi land, right? <laughs> that things always work. But, but the thinking is, um, yeah, if you build systems that are really good and robust, uh, you, you can do more with them. Um, and the whole decentralized view is that, you know, everyone that's using it has a stake in making the system better. Whereas it's not quite as much of a stake with the centralized exchange and there's obviously different levers of control over who gets to make those decisions so yeah i think for us um you know we, we definitely see DeFi as as critical to this whole project and then what are some of the ways that you are trading in DeFi? um yeah i mean there's sort of a lot of different ways um basically you know looking at you know the, the pricing on different venues seeing i mean it's again it goes back to sorry to make it sound so boring and like be a repeat but you know on, on dexes um seeing what the pricing is comparing that to cfi seeing what it makes sense to buy on one sell on the other vice versa um it's nothing too exciting um you know we can also you know provide liquidity for projects that we have strategic partnerships with and we want to help them you know bootstrap liquidity from an early stage uh so yeah there's there's all i guess that is the wrinkle that we can do that with you know see if i you know we can market make which i guess is a comparable um but yeah it's mainly trading high frequency trading um and then i'd say again like the lending borrowing is something we're very focused on with DeFi too uh being users of DeFi lending borrowing protocols yeah i think that's pretty cool so um you are you're able to to lend to uh to lending protocols like uh so we just just to clarify we just borrow so we don't lend at all um basically yeah we're always looking to um have more sources of borrow to diversify our borrowing counterparties to increase the capital that we can trade with um so we're active borrowers right and you know you can look at clearpool for example or you know maple has a pool where uh you know maven 11's pool on maple where we're one of the leading borrowers and I mean, Clearpool, for example, is pretty cool because any individual can lend their assets to Wintermute through Clearpool. So any individual can, in a way, get exposure to Wintermute. Um, you don't really get exposure to our PL, but you get a yield that is set by the supply and demand of the pool. And you're getting that, that Wintermute is essentially paying. Um, so that's a pretty cool feature that gives individuals access to yield generated from market making activities. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're borrowing from these places, uh, and, you know, pretty meaningful sizes, you know, that these pools are, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, so we, we hope those types of pools expand and that we have more DeFi pools that we can borrow from. How much are you lending from DeFi right now? Um, I don't actually know uh, what borrowing. the total is. Yeah. Borrowing. Yeah, exactly. I don't actually know how much the top is off the top of my head. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure what the breakdown is of our one book off the top of my head. Sorry. And do you know, like what, what rates uh, are you paying? Yeah, I think, I mean, we can just look at Clearpool right now. So I'm just gonna, you know, it's all public. Uh, we can go to Clearpool. We can see the That's rates. That's the beauty of DeFi. Yeah, exactly. Not I can send you a, yeah, <laughs> clearpool.finance. And uh -huh. there we are, 12.53%. So it's, it's going to constantly adjust based on, on the supply and um, USDC, yep. Nice, So, nice. yeah, you can lend Wintermute, you know, USDC and get paid 12.53%. Right now, the pool size is just under $17 million. So, you know, I'm not trying to 
um, encourage anyone. This is not investment <laughs> advice or financial advice. We're not just, giving any investment <laughs> advice. Yeah, I'm just seeing um, the facts of what I'm seeing yeah. here on the Clearpool dashboard. Okay, um, and and those are uncollateralized loans mm -hmm. that you're yep. doing. Exactly. So, so I, I think this is pretty new uh, within DeFi. You know, just like the the unsecured uh, or undercollateralized loan space. Uh, and I think the fact that um, entities like Wintermute are are getting involved uh, with DeFi protocols is allowing this uh, this area in decentralized finance to flourish. Which you know, before uh, it was mostly just collateralized loans uh, because it was individuals lending kind of uh, smart contracts, and you had to put up collateral. But if you have, you know, an institution like Wintermute who is behind those loans and, and you and you know that, you know, th there is a credit rating involved that, you know, you know, uh, you have like essentially, you know, all this cash and then you're you, you'll probably be good, uh, you know, or there's like uh, less risk, I guess, than with an unknown counterparty. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, that's uh, that's allowing unsecured lending to happen. Yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And you know, you can sort of dive into it and see, like, okay, they give an overview on Wintermute, and they show, like, okay, what's our rating? How much can we borrow in total? What have we provided to get our rating? And the rating is provided from Cordora, who we sort of talked about earlier. Um, and, and that's the idea: is to give, you know. I mean, that's the idea of DeFi, right, is to sort of open up all these financial services to everyday people to engage with directly. Uh, and yeah, this stuff, I guess, when you take a step back is pretty groundbreaking and cool. The Alio blockchain allows for zero-knowledge smart contracts that are private by default and executed entirely off-chain. With its development tools, Alio is making it super easy to build private and scalable applications. Developers without previous cryptographic knowledge can take advantage of Alio Studio and of Alio's own smart contract language, Leo. Builders and users alike should not have to make compromises between convenience and privacy. Learn more by joining the Discord at alio.org discord or heading directly to www.alio.studio. In the final part of our conversation, I asked David about his views on the venture side of crypto. Besides wanting to see developments in infrastructure, what does he think about the current environment in private markets? Also, with the downturn in funding crypto startups, where does he see the space evolving? Yeah, yeah, I think a, a few things. First, um, on, on the trading side, you know, seeing sort of an increase in counterparties onboarding um, in terms of the actual volumes of trading. Um, those are definitely, you know, aggregate global volumes are down from last year. There's no other way to put it, right? Like by a meaningful amount, if you look across major exchanges. Um, but then to go into your actual question on the venture side, uh, you know, I think we're seeing a few things. First is valuations are obviously coming down, um, you know, not always at the earliest stage, more so at the later stage, but still somewhat at the earlier stage, valuations are coming down. Um, but the biggest difference is that there's more time to do diligence than there was before. So during the bull market, there's no time to make thoughtful decisions. You're, you're in or you're out and you have 24 hours. Uh, but now we have time to get to know the founders. They have time to get to know us. Um, we can lead investments. We have the time to do that. So it, it's just, we can be much more thoughtful about who we want to partner with, who we want to provide capital to. Um, founders can be more thoughtful about who to put on their cap table. And it's just probably better for creating long-lasting relationships. So valuations are coming down. There's more time to work on deals. There still is quite a lot of capital out there that's looking to be put to work. So I'd say that when there is a good team, they get backed you know, pretty quickly. Um, and you know, there's still rounds that get oversubscribed. But again, it's nothing like it was you know, in the bull market. And... Yeah, I think it's just a better environment for making thoughtful decisions uh, on both sides of the table. What are some of the, the developments uh, in, in DeFi that uh, you'd like to see uh, now that, you know, we, we do have more time to build and be more thoughtful? Um, I, you know, just personally, I, I am looking forward to, to seeing what innovations come out uh, of this period. Uh, I think kind of 
bull markets get really crazy and sometimes you see just like a lot of the same projects on copycats um and and usually it's in in bear markets where you see kind of the real kind of groundbreaking stuff uh, because essentially like founders are forced to uh, be, be more creative so what are what are you kind of either just already seeing uh or if not just like hoping to see Yeah. So, so for me, I guess my personal interest is to see financial products that are um, scalable to a wider consumer base, right? So DeFi, a lot of the products right now are for traders, for investors, um, but there's so many financial services that everyday people use that can be done through DeFi that aren't yet built. Um, like one in particular idea that I've been thinking about for a few years is mortgage origination. Um, it's actually, um, I wrote about this in a research paper in business school, uh, kind of putting the whole mortgage origination process on the blockchain could make things so much more efficient, could save so much money. I mean, just, it's such an outdated industry where you need to pay someone $2,000 for title insurance to prove that the person that sold you the house actually owns the house. I mean, all that information can live on the blockchain and basically be free. Uh, it's very hard to change these industries because there's a lot of incumbents that want to keep things the way they are because that's how they make their money by the inefficiencies are actually the way they can charge high fees. Um, but to me having, you know, things like mortgage origination, insurance products, uh, just everyday things that everyday people need done through DeFi, that, that is what I'm really excited about. Yeah. Same here. It, it seems like, um, the, 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 the past couple of years when, you know, DeFi just is, got started right it's, it's just like I, I i think it's kind of uh reaching it's um i don't know it, it, hopefully it's it's kind of growing up uh because uh it, it's for 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 as much fun as it is it is a space that's for kind of degens right Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and and that and, and, and I, I I love it. Like I love covering it. It's it's so fun. It's so interesting. Um, but I agree that I that it's true. Like it 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 has yet to kind of cross that chasm uh, until you know where it's actually useful for just like the everyday person. I I don't think it's there yet. Yep, totally agreed. And uh, maybe this is the time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. excited about that. Hope so. Uh, okay, and then uh, finally, uh, I'd love to hear how, uh, how what makes you defiant. If you think you are defiant. <laughs> oh, nice, good question. Um, what makes me defiant? Well, what makes you defiant? Why don't we start with that? So I know how you'd even define defiant. <laughs> what makes me defiant? I think um, I've always uh, just. Kind of um, have stubbornly been thinking kind of bigger, <laughs> and, and sometimes it's like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just like stay still? Um, so it's like, okay, I was in Chile and decided to go for like the biggest like newspaper in Chile. Then I was there and I was like, actually, I don't want to be in Chile anymore. Like, I want to go for like a U.S. media company. So I was at Bloomberg and then at Bloomberg, I'm like, no, like now I need to have like my own thing and write my own, like write a book. And then like, you know, now I'm at the Defiant and I'm thinking about like really bigger things. Like, why can't I just have a media company? No, like I need to have like a financial information company. Um, so it's, it's, I think that's what, what makes me defined. It's like, I'm always kind of, I'm always thinking bigger. I'm thinking about kind of what's next, like what, like where, where can I go? Um, and I don't know, it's sometimes, uh, at some point I'll, I'll have to just like be happy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so far it's worked out. <laughs> nice. Nice. I like that. That's a really good answer. Um, yeah, I think, uh, For me, it, you know, I don't have um, quite the awesome story you have with building all these cool things and leading all these things. Um, but I think for me, it's just more about, you know, questioning, like almost like a skepticism of the way anyone's doing anything and wanting to question it, which honestly sometimes makes it hard to work in large organizations. Um, like, you know, when, before when I was, you know, a traditional finance working in a 1500 person company, 
I would just question like our processes and structures and even just like the way senior people got so much power and decision-making rights. Like it just, um, it didn't always serve me well to ask those things, but it also enabled me to think about how I would do things if, you know, I, I was kind of running things. Um, and maybe what's I've you know enjoyed about Wintermute is that it's a very kind of ownership mentality where, you know, every person really can do almost whatever they want in the firm. It's just like, take things that you're excited about and work on them and question them and make them better. Um, and I feel like that's how crypto is in general, right? There's not like these walls of roles and structures and hierarchies in place. So that's why I've really, you know, it's probably like another aspect of the culture that I've really enjoyed. Um, so yeah, I think I'm defined just by questioning things. Um, and I, I guess like early on in my career, I remember getting negative feedback about that saying that you shouldn't like always question your boss's decision or like ask why just <laughs> accept it. But I really don't like accepting things if I don't understand them. Like if I understand them, sure. But if I don't understand them, I'm just going to keep on asking. Yeah, I think you should. Um, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm glad that crypto is still at a point where, um, you know, the where, where people here are 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 in that mindset of questioning the status quo, uh, and I think that's how we we get to build something that's better than what you know was the standard before. Amen. Yeah. All right. So this was awesome. Thank you so much. Um, uh, yeah, really, really great insights on what's going on in, in the markets. Um, maybe kind of not the, 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 the most kind of optimistic on, on price, but definitely optimistic on, on just what's happening on, on the ground uh, with, yeah. with builders. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great summary. Um, and thank you, Camilla, for having me. This was a, uh, True pleasure, as I'm sure many of your uh, guests say. Uh, you know, I've learned about your show early on in my crypto career, so it's uh, you know a moment of personal fulfillment to actually make it to the show. Oh, no, it's, <laughs> it's been great having you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. 